0: The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com.
1: I'm Kate Bowler, and I'm the author of No Cure for Being Human and a professor at Duke University, and I'm ready to start digging deep.
0: Welcome to Digging Deep, Presented by Zen Books and Abacus Data. I'm Mark Sutcliffe, and I'm on a quest to learn from the best. A couple of months ago, I stumbled upon an article in the New York Times with the headline, One thing I don't plan to do before I die is make a bucket list. It was written by an associate professor at Duke University and the author of a book called No Cure for Being Human. Her name is Kate Bowler. I have to admit, I've been consumed with questions about mortality for a long time. I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks about these things. I went through a period about 10 years ago when I really struggled with how finite our lives are, and how you don't know when you're going to die, and how you might find some joy in knocking off a bunch of accomplishments before you go, but then you're still going to be dead anyways. Like I said, I don't talk about this much because probably people wouldn't want to hang around with me anymore. So this article really resonated with me, and I was really impressed with how Kate Bowler took it all on, with wisdom, with humor, with thoughtfulness. And Kate has a particularly powerful reason that gives her a sharpened perspective on the subject. At 35 years of age, Kate was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. She was told she had a very small chance of surviving, only 14%. She started to think every event, every birthday, every autumn, every Christmas would be her last. It's a very, very tragic story. But Kate has outlived her prognosis thanks to some specialized treatment. And she writes about all of this with incredible clarity and a lot of wit. In her piece in the New York Times, she wrote about... The Strange Math of Life. She wrote, There is nothing like the tally of a life, all of our accomplishments ridiculous, all of our striving unnecessary. Our lives are unfinished and unfinishable. We do too much, never enough, and are done before we're even started. We can only pause for a minute, clutching our to-do lists at the precipice of another bounded day. The ache for more The desire for life itself is the hardest truth of all. So the more I discovered about Kate, the more I wanted to meet her and learn from her. I wanted to explore her perspective on what she calls finitude, which is the shortness and limitation of one life. Kate has another book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lives I've Loved. And I have to admit that really resonated with me because... I've always hated that expression, everything happens for a reason, because it's trying to make sense of tragic events and put things that really can't be put into context into some framework to make it all work, to make it all seem logical. I think it's actually kind of trite and empty. So I reached out to Kate, and I was really grateful that she agreed to chat. In our conversation, Kate is poignant and wise, and she is also absolutely... Hilarious. She talks about her son's giant eyeballs, about being poisoned by a snake, and she even finds humor in her cancer journey. Kate talks about how we need to give up rabid individualism and accept that we belong to one another. She teaches us that we can find meaning without everything being a lesson, and that while the future does require planning, sometimes it's good to just take a bulldozer to your life and go swimming with some sharks, She reminds us that we don't get endless chances, and that while life isn't fair, it can still be incredibly beautiful. It is a remarkable perspective. I know you're going to enjoy this. One last thing before we get started with Kate. I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast, if you're not doing so already, and post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, please share it with other people, pass it on to your friends, And I'd also encourage you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Dig. It's a very quick, two-minute read. It has five really useful lessons that you can apply to your life and to your work. Lots of people are reading it every week and enjoying it, so please give it a try. You can subscribe at letsdigdeep.com. That's letsdigdeep.com. Now, let's start digging deep with the author of No Cure for Being Human, Kate Bowler. Kate, it is such a pleasure to meet you and to be chatting with you. I have been reading and listening to so much of your work, and it's really made me think about a lot of important things. Um, So I'm very grateful uh, to have your your time today. And it's funny because I was... I was thinking, you know, in preparation as, and you host a podcast, so, you know, you end up with this long list of questions. You never get yeah. to all of them. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, I have all of these things I want to talk about with, with Kate <laughs> and we're going to run out of time. And then I realized that's kind of like, actually the theme of
1: that's exactly right yeah, <laughs> yeah we're gonna grapple with our finitude uh yeah, yeah metaphorically and literally i yeah. like
0: it so so you know a finite podcast is the perfect example yeah. of how we'll
1: never be enough
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> i'll whisper that at the
1: beginning and the end yeah. in that voice
0: yeah but thank you it's a pleasure
1: oh so glad to be with you
0: so before we dive into you know your work and and the amazing stuff that you've done let's Let's talk a little bit more about you. So what would you say is your fondest childhood memory?
1: Oh, I um, I think it's every little moment with my older sister, Amy. We were like two little peas in a pod, very snuggle bugs. So I, we, we, I think it's always just being wrapped up in, in towels that came out of the dryer.
0: Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. My daughter, by the way, who's also named Kate, um, <laughs> she loves being cozy. She has, she's 10. She has the onesies, you know, she, yes. yeah. Everything is about, yeah. You
1: yeah. Know. I did have one moment where I met the, well, met is a strong word, but I'm Canadian. So I, I got to see the queen. She just drove by in a, uh, in her little motorcade down uh, the Pembina highway, which is barely a highway near my through my house growing up. And, um, we walked out and every, like all of, all the whole city came out to, to watch her drive by. And I was sitting on my dad's shoulders and, and I waved and I waved and I waved and she waved to us. And then I got down and, and I saw $20 on the ground and I thought, Oh my gosh, this is what she does. She just throws (laughs) out money to the crowd. It took, took years for me to realize that I just, someone had obviously just dropped it, but that the, the queen wasn't like quite so benevolent. But it would make
0: sense because she, her face is on it too. Yeah. I was like, you gave
1: this to me. She's like, welcome. Checking
0: twenties out the window. Just getting to
1: know each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, It was a powerful time for, for us together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who was your hero when you were 10 years old?
1: Oh, now I want to give a, you know, it was, it was Terry Fox because we had Terry Fox day. It's a, it's a Canadian runner who had yeah yeah I'm, I'm Canadian.
0: It? I'm Canadian too, oh my right so you't
1: to. okay, thank you yeah. for saying that because <laughs> I heard it when you said about and I was like, oh good God. Oh really please tell me, yes, please tell me that <laughs> we uh, yeah. we both share. I didn't want to say it immediately when I was like, is this, is this a moment between us? But I was like, (laughs) I'm pretty sure he's Canadian. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm
0: in Ottawa right now. So, okay. So I can
1: just stop saying um, the most important thing about me, which is that obviously I'm this Canadian to bring it up. And two, that Winnipeg does not get its fair shake in the world. Who, who among us wants to talk about Winnipeg? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it was, it was Terry Fox. I thought he was absolutely the coolest person my elementary school self had ever heard of. And also the Lord Jesus Christ, Mark. I think we both know a carpenter from Galilee.
0: Yes. Um, And, and by the way, I never understood the about thing. Um, The the fact that I, we pronounce about differently in Canada. But
1: better. Uh, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Until,
0: um, until I was around a bunch of Americans for um, a a period of maybe a week or so. And then, and then a Canadian person, I was the only Canadian person. And then another Canadian person yeah. came into the group. And I, all of a sudden I heard this Canadian accent that I'd never heard <laughs> before in my life. Right. Cause this yeah. person and, and it really like, I noticed how differently that person was saying about.
1: Yeah. We have a special, we have a special world we inhabit and yeah. it's, it's in our apologies. We say, sorry, <laughs> and we mean it. And yeah. every time there's an Applebee's, there's a, just a, you in that neighborhood and uh, neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, I love it. My dream is to actually publish a book where I get to keep all the use where they right. belong, but like in will, color and yeah, and yeah, neighborhood. And, but it yeah. will never happen. Market will never I know. come to be.
0: What did you think you were going to be when you grew up?
1: Oh, always a professor. Yes, really? Never, never, not a professor. There was just, I was going to have a, a turret and many gargoyles. And yeah, both my parents are professors and they made it seem wildly unglamorous. And, uh, I think my dad had an actual, I think he, he had a, his office was also shared with the janitor. And so I, I was just like, yeah, it's where books and and brooms are are stored. (laughs) And, uh, I just, but I thought it was such wonderful work to be able to answer every question in like a, a full essay who, who doesn't love that person.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Um, what's your life story in six words?
1: Mm. Delusionally optimistic, cancer, slow reconsideration. Now I'll add that I'm going to add that last word now for the sixth.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's pretty good.
1: If you ask for a haiku, I could probably do it. It's, <laughs> it's the morning. So I'm, I'm looking alert.
0: Yeah. Um, for what do you feel most grateful?
1: my son. And I don't mean that as a cliche. and everyone's grateful for their kids. I mean, yeah. I, that is, that is the, the, the thing I least deserve and most enjoy is that kid.
0: Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. He's, is he about seven or eight now?
1: Yeah. And most of the weight is in his head and eyeballs. So he's mostly eyeballs. It just yeah. goes around and with masks, it's extra funny because he's just all eyes just yeah. eyes and backpack.
0: Yeah. Eyes and backpack. Yeah. They didn't, we didn't have big backpacks. I'm, I'm older than you, but like, you know, when I was a kid, I don't yeah. remember carrying around, you know, 25 pounds worth of stuff everywhere. I went <laughs> I to know. My kids do I know.
1: today. They look like they're kind of being like the way they lean forward. Cause of the yeah. backpack, it looks like they're constantly fighting a strong wind. Yeah, exactly. uh, (laughs) That they will likely be toppled in just the sincere effort to go from house to card and car to school.
0: Yeah. Um, What's been the best year of your life so far and why?
1: Oh, um, hmm. yeah, the year I had Zach 2013, I had had a lot of um, infertility and a lot of uh, health. Just I had this joint disorder. And I lost use of my arms very suddenly. And I, it turns out I need my arms to be an academic. And then, and then all of a sudden I had this, uh, miracle, uh, little frog and I was so happy about it. And he, um, he smelled good all the time. And I was very surprised by that, inf- that information. And I, it turns out I could be wonderfully productive during his naps and nobody has that experience where like, Oh gosh, the first year of my son's life was a dream, but it really was. I could not believe how, um, they say babies can't smile, but I was positive. He just sort of came out and had this sort of evil, just evil smile on his face. And I was like, that's it, bud. We're going nice. to, we're going we're gonna to do something.
0: Nice. Um, maybe this is obvious, you know, given <laughs> your story, but what's been the toughest year of your life so far?
1: Yeah, that would be the year I was diagnosed with stage four cancer, very suddenly out of the blue and I was 35 and every part of that year was truly awful. Yeah. But don't worry. I was enriched with life-giving lessons that <laughs> made the whole thing work it, with it. Just yeah. joking. That's not how it works. <laughs> it, was,
0: it was all just material for a couple of best-selling books, Kate, right?
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. When it was happening, I was like, good God, this better be really financially lucrative.
0: Yeah, exactly. Where's and that's my milk Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. I got to write some of this stuff yeah. down. Thank yeah. God
1: this is happening to me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, what one person would you say has had the greatest impact on your life?
1: My dad. My dad is the best long form thinker I know and a deep romantic about ideas. And so, yeah, I wouldn't have gone into the idea business if it wasn't my dad. And I wouldn't have known. uh, he, he He also just read my essays ever since I was very little and created like a best friend's writing club for 12 year olds who also didn't want to read my stuff. And he just looks so disappointed every time I use an adjective. So I I don't think I would be, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't be a writer and I wouldn't love, um, arguing if I didn't have my dad.
0: Nice. And I know you send him stuff all the time, right? Just like like, yeah. yeah, I
1: send him all my, I, everything I write, I send to him and he has a lot of unbelievably strong feelings about it. And then at the end of our conversation, instead of saying, I love you, he says, I'll follow your career with interest, which he has said ever since I was a small child, which is, I'll follow your career with interest. It See is ya. such a funny thing to say. <laughs> I'm like, I love you. And he's like, I will follow your career with interest. And he said that, of course, when I didn't have a career, I just had like math homework, but it's so funny. <laughs> That's great. Um,
0: and what's he got against adjectives?
1: Yeah, it feels they're florid unnecessary right.
0: ornamental I respect that
1: yeah, he's like I, that I, he likes the economy of words
0: yeah I respect that you know it's it's kind of like that thing when you're reading a novel and and somebody writes you know I'm going to the store now said Joe passionately and it's
1: like, <laughs> or, or whatever
0: <laughs> you know I'm making yes. that up but
1: languidly like, <laughs> gosh yeah. why can't he just go to the store and why yeah. can't you make the store do its own work
0: yeah like what you know if, if somebody's mad, it should be obvious. It shouldn't, you yeah. shouldn't need to just, dis- yeah. So I respect that.
1: <laughs> you guys will get along.
0: Yeah. Um, what's the most important lesson you've learned that you would share with other people?
1: Um, that life will not be fair, but it can still be beautiful.
0: Yeah. So true. What would people be most surprised to learn about you? <laughs>
1: I want so much to confess to a crime right now because that would (laughs) add like a whole other layer to this conversation. Um, never convicted Mark, never convicted. Um, I don't know because I'm such a, I'm like such a one layered person. I feel like no one would be surprised by any information about me. (laughs) They meet me and be like, Oh, she probably probably cries a lot about other people's problems. And I do. Mm -hmm. And I really like nerdy history books. And that is also obvious about me. And Right. Um, Oh, maybe that I don't cry at all in movies because I'm like, you can't manipulate me. People have real problems. Oh, you don't.
0: So the movies don't get you.
1: No, I because I as part of the work, I I get to really hear about hundreds and hundreds of people's befores and afters in their life. So I feel like the drama is all in real life.
0: Okay. because I'm a sucker for that stuff. Like I'm 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 more likely to cry watching a movie or a TV show than in any, you know, like when confronted with real life. Uh, I with, feel so, yeah.
1: <laughs> then you, then you wander around the day, tapping your heart, being like, is this thing on? Yeah. And then, it, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you wait, have to wait for Netflix.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now nah, we should, we should dig deeper into that Mark. That feels like you've got some stuff we can work on. <laughs>
0: I know. That's a problem. I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. We could spend the rest of the time just getting <laughs> into that. If that feels important.
0: Yeah. What's your secret talent?
1: Uh, Um, no, it's not. No, empathy. truly just empathy. Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good cellist. So that's not bad. There you go. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Not the worst thing to be good at. Oh, I mean, the kazoo would have no dignity to it.
0: Exactly. No, I'd put the cello like really high on the list, you know, of of if you're going to be good at something. Thanks. Musically. Right.
1: Well, wow, maybe I'll maybe I'll make it less of a secret talent then. Maybe yeah, I'll, yeah bring that up more often.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, I'm tempted to ask you to play something right now, but I won't. Sure. Yeah. It's under
1: this, <laughs> it's under this desk. I'll just yeah. bring it out. Great. <laughs> um, it's actually the unaccompanied box suites. Just I need five to ten minutes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What's your boldest prediction for the future?
1: Oh, this is <laughs> I can only think of funny ones like this will not go well. Um, Well, I'm really hoping that I can help talk people into interdependence. So I'm hoping that categories like public health will not feel so ridiculous because people will give up their rabid individualism. So, yeah, right. my hope is that we'll come to some greater accounting of of how we belong to one another and that maybe Americans will, I don't know, come around on that eventually.
0: Like steer uh, back toward a common interest
1: rather than yeah well yeah. they they all their mythologies and canadians are exempt from this but all their mythologies are um righteous individuals sort of galloping toward a sunset of their own choosing and so um but which makes solving collective problems really complicated i cannot get them to not laugh when i mention the united nations i <laughs> they just don't like uh they do not like yeah arbiters that are not themselves so
0: yeah Uh, If you were, and obviously you're a teacher, and you talk to students all the time, but if you were giving a commencement address, what would be your key message?
1: I guess most of the work I do is around is around the kind of themes of um, of um, surrendering easier truths, like everything happens for a reason, or you know that you are unlimited and you just need to tap into your inner potential. Most of the time, I'm um, so I'd, I'd. I would want people to, uh, yeah, um, lean into like a gentler place of love um, that's not everything is possible and it's not nothing is possible. It would be much more along the lines of um, what is possible today.
0: Mm, Great. Because a lot of commencement speeches are actually more of those kind of, you know, sort of trite kind of platitudes and idioms, you know, like,
1: yeah, it's like a self help seven steps to conquering something, something. Yeah, I prefer less conquering, just, (laughs) just more, more reasonable, reasonable problem solving and step taking.
0: Yeah. And and we'll come back to some of those, because I I mean, I, you know, I, there's so much about what you write about that that resonates here, I'm saying the word about and being really self conscious about it now. (laughs) Um, but there's so much of it that resonates with me. That's more important than this. But one of the things that really does resonate with me is, um, I'm always talking to my wife about how much I hate expressions. Like everything happens for a reason and what doesn't yeah. kill you make, what makes you stronger and all of that. Cause I think it's all crap, but yeah, um, great. yeah, we'll come back to
1: <laughs> yes. that. <laughs> yes. Let's <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, yeah. What's been a recent epiphany for you? Is there something about which you've changed your mind or, or is there some recent discovery?
1: Mm, yeah, I, I, I think the one of the biggest things I've reconsidered is when people say be present as being present solves the problem of pain or makes the makes life less, um, yeah, less terrible. I think it's just part of this larger mythology of mindset that we've gotten overly focused on. So I now no longer would say something like be present. Like the 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 way the way to really dig deeper in your life is to be present. I think we move into the past, into the future for all kinds of good reasons. And so yeah. I have a greater, greater tolerance for that. Mm.
0: And uh, apart from your own books, is there a book that has had a big, Im- big impact on you or that you're most likely to recommend to other people?
1: Mm. I'm always going to tell you whatever the last thing I read for the podcast mm. was, because I'm always completely in love with all my podcast guests. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, sure. the most recent podcast book that I loved, uh, which was the one I just read is uh, the Stanley Tucci book on taste. I, he, the actor, Stanley rec- Tucci. Yes. Yeah. He, um, who's wrote a book. I, sh-
0: I call him an actor. He's way more than that. Obviously he's, he does he's all so this other things. Wording. Yeah. Yes.
1: yeah. <laughs> well, he's, um, he, yeah, he, he's very interested in food and wrote a book that was mostly about recipes and partly about his family history. And what I loved about that book and our conversation about it was talking about digging into our, um, our pleasures and rediscovering the small things that bring us joy and, and half of it would, honestly, if I could pick something that gives me joy, it would be him just describing what goes into a martini with like the angriest voice. <laughs> and he's just so intense about it, but it makes me feel very serious about small joys.
0: Oh, nice. Kate, thank you for answering those questions. We're going to take a short pause and then we are going to continue digging deep with Kate Bowler. We're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you a little bit more about the presenting sponsor of Digging Deep, Zenbooks. Zenbooks is Canada's go-to cloud accounting firm. They are not your typical accounting firm. I know the founders, Colin and Eric. I've worked with them for several years. And here's why I think you should consider working with them too. First of all, they bring a fresh, unique, modern approach to what is a very old-fashioned industry. These guys were working remotely remotely and in the cloud long before it became cool. Zenbooks also uses technology to your advantage. I think this is really important. They give you the tools and analysis you need to monitor your business in real time. That's so valuable right now when everything changes so quickly. Yes, they're a virtual accounting firm, but that doesn't mean they're offshore, and it doesn't mean they're inattentive. Zenbooks combines the efficiency and effectiveness of a cloud accounting service with all the benefits that you'd want from a trusted advisor, high-level advice, and strategic support. Now, here's what I think is going to happen if you work with Zenbooks. You'll probably start out taking advantage of their cutting-edge cloud accounting solutions, but in the long run, I think you'll stay with them because of their strategic guidance and problem-solving. Among their core values, they specifically list being candid and proactive. Isn't that exactly what you want from a trusted advisor? Look, even if you're already working with an accountant or a bookkeeper, or you have some accounting staff on your team, I think you should still talk to Zenbooks and learn more about their tools and their expertise. Check out Zenbooks at zenbooks.ca. That's ZenBooks. .ca Digging deep is all about helping you make better decisions, and so is Abacus Data. Most leaders struggle to connect with and engage their audiences. Why is that? It's because they aren't sure how they think and feel and how they will react. Abacus Data can give you the strategic insights you need to make better decisions and to make them confidently. Here's a good example. A major national union was recently negotiating a new agreement for its thousands of members. This had the potential to be a very difficult process. There were many competing interests. So they brought in Abacus Data to conduct thorough and detailed research of their members to learn exactly where they stood, what they were thinking, what they wanted. And as a result, they were able to secure a strong new deal that was accepted overwhelmingly in in a national vote. Abacus Data helps all of its clients understand what's really happening in the minds of their employees, clients, and stakeholders. They help them avoid costly blind spots. And they're really good at what they do. In fact, Abacus Data was one of the most accurate pollsters in the 2019 Canadian federal election. Make the one decision that will improve all of your other decisions, let Abacus Data help you move forward with confidence and clarity. Go to AbacusData.ca. That's AbacusData.ca. Kate, once again, it's such a pleasure. And you know, something that I meant to mention earlier uh, before we got into a discussion about our our shared Canadianness is <laughs> I, I really appreciate the fact that. In your writing, you know you you're, you live and work in the United States now, and and um, and obviously, the market for your work is going to be driven largely by this <laughs> giant country that's ten times the size of Canada. <laughs> but you don't hold back on your Canadian identity at all. You, I know there are a lot of people that that, and I don't blame them for this. I'm not I'm not criticizing them, but there are a lot of people who. And, you know, I did. it. I wrote a book about running and I tried to make it of North American interest to people. So I didn't really emphasize yeah. being in Ottawa, Canada when I was yeah, talking, yeah. telling stories about this because I was trying to make sure that it was accessible to everybody. But, you you know, I, I read stuff and you're mentioning the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, <laughs> <and> you're mentioning <laughs> like all this stuff about Canada, which I think is great. So thank you for doing that.
1: Oh, I well, it's all it's it's so fun to belong to somebody, and I I love belonging to, especially one of the have-not provinces. Makes me just <laughs> I'm like I'm kind of a have-not person, so I really relate to it. But it's in part what's helped inform my work as a historian of American mythologies and American religious history is to be a a loving outsider to a culture that I that I that I don't entirely share.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and, and just since we're on the subject of Manitoba, there, there is something, there's something special about Manitoba in its lack of distinctiveness in any way. Right? <laughs> like, like I have friends oh from God. Manitoba, but but it's sort of like when you think about all the provinces in the country... Uh, we're getting deep into Canadian stuff here, but like, when you think about, you know, like Atlantic Canada, there's all this beauty and British Columbia is amazing. And you've got the prairies and Alberta has got <laughs> some exciting things going on, you know, and, and Quebec has its own culture and Ontario's this yeah. economic powerhouse. And then there's like Manitoba.
1: Yeah, Manit- yeah. And then there's Manitoba. Yeah. Oh, can, do you mind if I just tell you why I just am so obsessed with this topic, which sure. I, okay. Well, so Manitoba comma <laughs> or Manitoba colon Adritus. <laughs> I uh things I have loved about being from there is one, when I'm even when I was in Minnesota, so I, I lived in Minnesota for four years, they would I would say I would they say where are you from? And I would say Manitoba. Their guess was always that it was somewhere near Texas. Even I was like it is abutting your state at this <laughs> at this very moment. Um it has uh, I loved growing up in a place with um absolutely zero pretension. You can have a nice car and good luck with that. No, one's going to see it for six months because it's buried under snow. Right. <laughs> I, it has no ego and very few class distinctions. Hmm. And so there's not like the, you know, we might sort of tease a, a neighborhood for being slightly wealthier, but every time that neighborhood is built slightly nearer to the dump in the middle of the city. And I think all of those things are wonderful humblers. They, I mean, just as an example, my, my dad, who is also a historian and he was launching a book and he was on the, the local Winnipeg radio station, CJOB. And he had to drive across town in the middle of the like early in the morning. And when his, the segment on his book was bumped so that Winnipeg could go into a full second hour of a segment on potholes, that is one of the fun <laughs> stories that we have told in my family, because that's what, of course. Fix. And I love being from a place that, um, knows itself. It has a giant shrug and is, uh, but it endures. It's a very, it's wonderful at enduring. It makes its own fun. And it has more world's largest in that province and like world's largest Northern trout statue world's largest wrought iron mosquito world's largest. Mm. <laughs> and it's because people, the, the, the first and the second world's largest, uh, fire hydrants are built mere blocks away. And I just think it's people who make their own fun. And all of those things are things I, I have always tried to hold on to that. I feel are true to the place I came from.
0: Nice. Yeah. But you're right because it's, it's sort of impossible to, to become full of yourself in a place <laughs> like that. Right. Yeah. I,
1: I love it. They yeah. get very mad when I tease them. And, uh, but I will never give it up ever,
0: but is it, could you, is it, is it true? You had a bit of an obsession with Anne of green Gables.
1: I did. I wanted very much to go to wherever Anne of green Gables went to school. Wasn't clear that that was a fictional fictional (laughs) character. Um, yeah. I mean, I was every, I was probably every Canadian 80s child, which is that I loved Anne of Green Gables, the Babysitter's Club, and really imagined that somewhere out there was a horse who really needed to understand my personality.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if we only knew each other.
0: Yeah. Um, so before we, you know, obviously we're, we're going to talk about um, the awful things that started <laughs> happening to you. Uh, <laughs> six or seven years ago but but um
1: it's amazing foreshadowing yeah work. yeah this they we're gonna talk about the horror show that is your yeah. life
0: but um I, I i just picked this up recently listening to an interview with you you were bitten by a, a snake uh, yes, in,
1: yes. In, i was recently like, poisoned
0: <laughs> yeah yes. you by a poisonous snake so so yeah. on top of everything else that's been going on in your life you you get bitten by a poisonous snake
1: it was it, well, I had to go back to the same place where I'd had my horrible stage four cancer diagnosis, but was so funny to bust through the doors and have to yell to the intake nurse. I've been poisoned, which was <laughs> true. And I was laughing so hard that they don't I'm sure that they realized I was I was very serious. And it was, yeah, I had to be envenomated. They right. gave me a $120,000 worth of anti-venom.
0: $120,000 worth of Wow.
1: Anti-Venom. And that's how I developed the superpowers you see before you today. <laughs> that's right. That's how yeah. you
0: joined the Marvel universe. Yeah, yeah it was, a,
1: yeah. it was a real about turn for me from yeah. humble, from humble Canadian historian to yeah. Just laser eyed.
0: Yeah. Something, something. Um, but did you have to, did you have to pay the $120,000 or
1: that's a very nice, that's a very nice question that's related to our shared concern about Americans and medical bankruptcy. But yeah. I, uh, I was in network, so I only had to pay a few thousand dollars.
0: Okay. So you were recovered to
1: not die. And yeah. there were long pauses between the doctor's evaluation where he said stuff like, eh, you'll keep the leg. <laughs> I was like, great thanks, Dr. So-and-so. I'm so glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that.
0: And did you just kind of throw your hands up in the air at that one after, after yeah, everything I mean, else that had happened?
1: What, what is one going to do yeah. after one has been poisoned?
0: <laughs> yeah. And how did it even happen?
1: I was being an amazing person is, the, is the, is the, okay. is how this story begins. No good Goes yeah, unpunished. yeah, exactly. I was walking near my house, which is an entirely suburban home. And I was two blocks from my house. And there's like a little park with mowed grass and a little gravel path that goes to a concrete path. And I was on the gravel path and there was an old man with a dog. And I realized he would want the gravel path. And at a time of COVID, I didn't want to crowd him. So I stepped backwards, half a step off into the grass. And then I was bitten <laughs> by a very random copperhead snake that was there just probably wow. having a great day before I probably stepped on it
0: before you you gave space to to a man in the time of COVID. to an
1: elderly man who yeah. just <laughs> who could never thank me because I was too busy hobbling back to my home and car
0: yeah wow
1: mm-hmm. thank you thank you mark it was a difficult time <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's crazy though so so I mean let let's go back to when you were diagnosed with stage four cancer and, and this, you know, you, you've talked about this, you've written about it and I don't want to be, you know, sort of asking you to play your greatest hits here, but, but I mean, you know, what did you go through at that time? Can you describe the, cause it, and it, you, you've, you've outlived by a long time, the, the original prognosis, right?
1: Yeah, I was, um, I really had no cancer in my family and no reason to think that I would be the one that gets sick. And then I had some stomach pain that I um, was very vocal about. I was like, this really hurts. It seems unreasonable. I went to a whole bunch of doctors and I was sent away from the ER at one point with Pepto-Bismol. And, uh, and then at one point it just, it became so bad that at my next appointment um, they were sort of doing a lot of shrugging about it. And I was like that, no, seriously, that's it. Like, I'm not leaving this office until you figure out a next step, because this is completely unbearable. But I said that in this, but much louder. (laughs) And, um, And then they gave me a scan and then called me at my office to say that I had stage four colon cancer, which is not common in young people. And so, I mean, the reason it got to stage four is because no one believed me, which I now know to be common, especially for women and people of color. It's just not, uh, yeah, it's just not quite as believed. And so after that, my life really exploded. It was, I was initially told that I had only a 14% chance of surviving. And, um, and since then it has been not, not in any way, like a clean story. It was a very harrowing, um, medical trial that I entered. It was a series of very, uh, difficult surgeries. And then it was just, um, very, very stressful scans ever since, because they I'm on the cutting edge of medicine, which is, doesn't just mean like, Oh, it's the brand new thing. It's the cutting edge, which means it's like, it's rough. It's uncharted. There's a lot of, um, I was part of an experiment in which some of the drugs really helped and others were not for my benefit, they were there to be part of a, a, trial protocol. So I've had a really rough, I've had a really rough road, um, trying to keep myself alive for the last six years.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and
1: how are you now? Medium. Uh, yeah. I'm medium. I'm not great. And I'm not terrible. I'm sort of smoky, the bear, not red for forest fires, but I'm Certainly not green. I'm kind of in the yellow to orange, depending on how it goes.
0: Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about uh, the stories you've told and the and and the message you've shared um, is you've been very candid about kind of the 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 reactions of other people when you when you find out you have cancer, the nature of the medical system. I mean, so many things because it it actually is it's kind of interesting how. How quickly people kind mm-hmm. of grab onto a story like that and put it into a very yeah.
1: prescribed
0: framework, right? A, a pre-existing narrative of, of, you know, you're you're gonna beat this and and yeah. so I've never experienced cancer personally, but my my I've had it in my close family. And so I've witnessed a lot of this stuff too, how how people react with they they immediately slot you into the cancer narrative, basically, mm-hmm. right? And it's way, yeah. way more. Complicated and diverse and and personal than that, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and I would say like it's they slot you into the suffering or the tragedy track, and so I I I think I could see the same explanations playing out for all kinds of problems. But I am, and you know, with my with my work as a historian, I study the kind of cliches and formulas that people give, and I did long before I got sick. So the wild irony of my life has been in studying the explanations that people have for suffering. And then of course, being the one whose life exploded, I uh, experienced firsthand how, yeah, just as you're describing how quickly people move to the, to the, 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 the meaning making about your life. So if there's a before and an after, there's a lot of rush to try to, get you to say, um, to try to give you a framework so that it it doesn't feel nearly so bad. So there's lots of ways to do it. There's, um, teaching. So someone has always recently seen a a Netflix documentary about the truth about cancer, and they're going to tell you it's probably, you know, this or that, or something you ate, or there's a lot of reasons assigned a lot of kind of searching for, for blame, frankly. And it's, it's not meant to be cruel, but I think it's, It's in part out of our desperate desire to, to know, but then also to protect ourselves from what we worry are the same. So there's a lot of like, especially because it was, and this is, I think it's different for every kind of tragedy. So if if you're the one with a divorce, then it's like, well, did you travel a lot? And know, there's just like an easy, you know, kids with medically, like medically fragile kids get like, well, did, did you, you know, did you have red dye 40? Did you, there's always these little
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, money. and I, I find that interesting because I, I, I don't resent it, but in, in what I've experienced in my life, I can hear people asking a question and what they're ultimately, what they're really asking is, can you please give me a piece of information that will reassure me that yeah, I'm not right. going to end up in the same place? Cause I didn't make the same choice as you, or yeah. I didn't eat the same food as you, or I didn't yeah. have the same experience as you. So I can know, like if, you know, so if if somebody my age dies of a heart attack, I need to know immediately that they didn't exercise, right? So that that's way right. I know if I'm exercising, it's not going to happen to me. And that's yeah. really what their question is, right?
1: Yes. Or someone's parent or grandparent dies, or then the first question is how old were they? Because yeah. if that answers the question of whether or not you should be devastated. And of course, none of these formulas will explain a life. And like they don't explain a death and they don't explain a life. And I, uh, being explained has been like the, like when people see me now and they feel the need to explain me, that has been one of the loneliest things I've ever been through. Because before I was just a person, (laughs) I was just like, Kate and I had some very interesting anecdotes about poisoning, (laughs) you know, and then after Manitoba, yeah, Yeah. it's really impressive Robinson from (laughs) let's return to that. Yeah. But then I'm, um. As, as, as a set of, um, of, of necessary reasons. And yeah, now you're, I'm, now you're like a
0: case study and you're a metaphor right. and you're, yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. That's a perfect description. Of case study. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've also really resented being a metaphor. I mean, I, cause I, I work, uh, I, I, work at a university, not just in a university, but in a, in a setting where I mostly teach um, pastors and nonprofit workers in a seminary. And so, gosh, the amount of like, and, you know, Christians are wonderful and Christians are the worst. We really are. And we, the amount of meaning making that goes into immediately, like um, yeah, being, being interpreted. And, and a lot of the, and uh, people have a lot of questions about what life means and they want very much for suffering people to help answer that. So yeah. like, like what in your life will add up to the feeling of enough. Is it like, is it okay? Because I married my high school sweetheart and I have this adorable kid, or does that make, you know, did I get my enough of my life done? And we're always trying to run this math on, on other people's lives to kind of answer some hard questions of our own.
0: Yeah. And then you get into sort of, well, at least, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. At least I, at least I'm
1: at a great hospital. At least I'm. Yeah. Yeah. At least I kept my hair. That was one thing I got a lot. And it's like, I mean. Meanwhile, you know, my fingernails falling off. I'm. Ugh. I I'll be lightly cut, and I can't stop bleeding. And I lose sensation in my feet and hands. And I. But at least I. At least I. At least I. Yeah. I, uh, I um. I really do understand that people are trying to give each other. Uh, are trying to ease the burden in some way, but um. So much of that uh, rushes in too quickly because yeah. especially especially cuz so little of it is done by your first circle people like the people who actually are there to help you like figure out how to carry something that you've just been saddled with
0: yeah and it's like people need to and i'm and and now i th- i'm sure the reverse is happening uh, on some level where people are uh, wanna know the secret to you outliving your diagnosis, right? That you right. you had faith, right? So therefore, oh, yes. that's the answer. Or, or a you, or you, yeah. Yeah, or you, you know, you, you did this, or you had a positive mm-hmm. attitude, or you refused mm-hmm. to die, or, you know, like all of these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. so I'll, I'll share, you know, and I've never liked the whole thing of, you know, courageous battle with cancer and all of that kind of thing. And my, my dad passed away of cancer. And oh, he didn't like that. He didn't like that terminology either. Because he said, like, I didn't, I didn't run into a burning building, like, you know, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't ask for the cancer and then fight it, you know, and even the fight metaphor and, you know, my, my dad was diagnosed and a year later he was gone. And it's Mm. like, that doesn't mean he, you know, gave up or lost or, or didn't try as hard or didn't pray as much or didn't, you know, like, so I, I do kind of resent not, I don't resent it. Like I get angry, but I just sort of don't feel it's appropriate to kind of attach character to who who outlives their diagnosis and who doesn't, right?
1: I could not agree more. I think that is trying to talk people out of the idea that our suffering is a test of character and that there's some kind of way then to know who lives or who dies or who's lucky or who isn't. And um, I mean, because when I think about the causality and why I'm alive, there uh, are so many competing and complementary reasons. And I'll just list them one. Uh, I, I got to try a, a, a brand new drug, um, immunotherapy drug that really worked for me. And it also didn't fix everything and left all kinds of other. And then I was on a lot of chemotherapy that, um, was truly terrible for me and that I had to take myself off of. And I, uh, and so it was, some drugs were good. Some drugs were bad. I, I would love to, because people like to be like, oh, well, medicine, like medicine is ambivalent. Medicine is ethically neutral. There's a, there's a million different iterations of how we receive or don't receive care. So yeah, did medicine save my life? Kind of. And also yes and no. And did did, did prayer save my life? I am I per- a Christian. I believe in miracles. I All kinds of people are praying for me. I have felt the love of community and the love of god in my life has that saved me that is not a causality that i can map directly i kind of sometimes i kind of think so and then sometimes i can't possibly know so then you do a lot of shrugging and uh, yeah. and then sometimes i sometimes i saved my own life because i exercised agency i if i had just accepted if i hadn't yelled at a doctor to get a scan if i hadn't Realized that the chemotherapy drugs I was on were actually not good for me. And then, and then got different medical advice. Like sometimes the person who saved my life was me. And so the passivity and the activity and the, there's so many kinds of causalities there that I just, there's no, there's no easy way to summarize it. And there's certainly no easy way to live it because we're all stuck trying to figure out when we should act and when we should accept and when we should let go. And that discernment seems to me to be like the hardest part of living.
0: Yeah. And we don't have time to get into this, but you, what you described earlier with the doctors, not taking your, you know, your pain seriously and not expecting this diagnosis from somebody who fit your profile. There's, there's, you know, there's so much there that about the medical system and how it sort of projects onto the patients. Right. And, and and doesn't treat every individual patient as a separate case, right. That it's, um, yeah there's there's a lot of profiling frankly in the medical system right yeah so that's right. Yes. um but do, do you think at the heart of this all of what we just talked about in the last few minutes is just people trying to make sense out of something that's impossible to make sense out of is that what's going now, on
1: i guess i would i've tried to you know because as part of my the the joy of my work is that i i get to write i have a uh, a podcast and I have a really beautiful community that I have been able to be a part of at the, so we have this thing called, so we took everything happens for a reason and then just crossed off for a reason and kept everything happens period. And, um, I think that's been one of the questions at the heart of this community, which is how do we live lives of of beauty and meaning and truth without then, um, then having to make it about lessons or about um, um, obsessive certainty, where we can root out direct causes and then say this happened because of that, formulas, like all the kind of simplistic thinking about um, why, I, uh, I think that's been the, the needle to thread is to, I mean, there's like for my story, there are a million gorgeous things I know now now that I am cracked open to the pain of the world and other people, things I would not have known otherwise, but there's no way that, I, but I will absolutely every day of my life resist than the math that would say this happened so that I could learn that, or right. aren't I so grateful that, and so allowing there to be meaning without lessons, I think is where I've landed.
0: I like that. I like that because it is a bit of a cliche to sort of say, oh, you know, I'd never give back this experience because of all the stuff (laughs) that I learned about. Right? Like,
1: give it back now. If you're in charge of that, I'd love to put in a request. I'd like to to exchange the life I've had. Thank you.
0: I'll take blissful ignorance without cancer, right? I'll
1: watch a documentary about cancer. Well, watch one of those documentaries they watched. I'm going to be so happy about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But- Um, You know, it's funny because when you were talking about that, I was thinking there used to be this sort of um, stupid cliche about uh, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Right. And Uh and um, and when you were talking there, I was thinking that in this in the context of our current obsession with constant improvement and 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 grasping, you know, meaning and life hacks and all of that you know, life is what happens while you're trying to learn the lesson of- Yeah, that's (laughs) right. When you're chasing after formulas, exactly. When you're yelling,
1: be present at other people. Yeah, Yeah. that's
0: that's like life is what happens when you're trying to derive the lesson from your experience and share it with others or derive the lesson from somebody else's experience so it can improve your life, right?
1: Yeah, what bothers me about the lesson piece is that it tends to be extractive. Like it's just like pulling out. It's like trying to suck out the marrow while someone's still living. Yeah, you know, you're like, oh, I just actually <laughs> needed that great plasma. I um <laughs> obviously know a lot about bones, um, <laughs> but I uh, I do like I find that the heavily instrumentalist approaches about like this happened because of that to be um or like or that you can get that we can sort of check off a set of meaning making and then be done with it. I mean, I I. I am a person of um, faith who believes that that we need courage to live our lives and that ultimately that we're living a part of our story, but that's also God's story. And that's a that's a deep meaning that I will assign to the the way that the world works. But I don't think any of it um, requires us to be quite so uh, quite so prescriptive. And the way that we stare down each other's lives and try to like, like try to add them all up. If we could just give up that kind of math, I think would be gentler, kinder, more loving people to the, to the, to the pains that persist and the things that can't be undone.
0: Yeah. And, and to me, it's the same as what you wrote about bucket lists, about kind of how pointless bucket lists are. It's it's if everything is a lesson, then, <laughs> you know, then what's I mean, I'm still going to be dead at the end of all of this. Right. Yeah. You know, like that's that's the way I look at it is it's kind of like, well, whether I go to Greece or, or not. Yeah. In a 100 years, I'll still be dead. And so
1: <laughs> unless um, you can Walt Disney this thing, Mark, and then you're going to be <laughs> fine. If you could cryogenically phrase yourself and then yeah. then give me the secret right before you do it. Yeah. And we never have to die.
0: And the same thing with all these lessons, right? So I learn a bunch of lessons. I extract a bunch of lessons, but I'm still going to be dead in 100 years, right? So
1: <laughs> I would say, I would say that it makes us, that especially like that life can carve out, that can make us deeper, richer, more compassionate, more service oriented. Like it can, it, it can make us virtuous. I'm really going to use that word. Yeah. Like it can, it can. I mean, in the theological language, we would pick like this is sanctification. It can change us in a beautiful way. But yeah, no, there's going to be no like, there's no there's no escape hatch. There's no button we get to push. Where we're like, did it? Yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't have to suffer a grisly end.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that you say that with a big smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> um. But so one of the things I wanted to explore with you, though, is the is the reality that we're all terminal, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and so, you, you know, before you had a cancer diagnosis, intellectually, you still understood. And, and I don't have a cancer diagnosis and I understand I'm, I'm going to die someday. I have a limited amount of time. It is finite. It's not yeah. infinite. Um, But what, what's different when you get that kind of diagnosis? Does it, is it that people like me are just walking around in a bubble all the time and, re, and, and kind of <laughs> pretend like just bliss, like, yeah. sort of unaware of like, yeah, we know it intellectually, but we don't know it. We don't know it sort of in a present way.
1: Yeah. I guess the difference between people very aware of their own finitude and people who aren't, and that can be for a lot of different reasons is that um, tends to be, at least in my experience, that um, often the obliviousness is that people don't know that they're lucky. People don't know that their lives could be taken apart at the seams you know, and that they're made of paper that always seems to be a real surprise (laughs) for people. Um, And, uh, and I guess the other bit is um, lucky people, oblivious people tend to have like an aggressive futurism where they're always making plans. um, And they don't realize how contingent those plans are. I remember uh, it was like never more obvious to me than when I was, um, having kids or trying to have kids when you have the friend who's like, I've read this book and I will have a boy and it will be made, you know, and it will happen on Christmas day. And they just like have a, and then they talk about their birth plan. And like, as if one of the great miracles, which is that we can make life at all could be fully boiled down to their like incredible acts of natural science. And I'm like, Oh, like that, that seems to me to be a, a wonderfully fortunate perspective. And so when they, the, the idea that we can always make plans is something that I've definitely given up as a, as a result of being someone more like me.
0: Yeah. Do you think we all should do more of that in a way? Like, I mean, cause you know, I, it's interesting. I did, I had this conversation with a friend who's, who's closer to your age than my age. Um, who was talking about what he wanted to do when he was 55. And I, you know, we're, we're close enough that I could say this, but I said, what makes you think you're going to be 55? Right. Cause Uh you you know, like, and nothing wrong with having plans for like, I'm not saying, you know, don't save for your retirement, obviously. Yeah. um, I guess don't pay off your mortgage, but, but like, (laughs) but don't, don't count on it all happening the way you've planned it out. Right. I love that you said
1: don't pay off your mortgage because that's, I mean, because Canadians all pay off their mortgages and Americans (laughs) need to leverage them as, as jet. It's so wild. Um, Yeah. I think that this is partly why we need to, we need to have an account of the past and the present and the future is in the future. We, we still need to do paperwork. We still need to, um, create frameworks that we can all live inside, especially if we have people we love who depend on us. You know, we need to make plans for our parents' care and our kids' care and yeah. all the people whose lives depend on us. So the future is, is requires planning. There's no such thing as we just live day by day, Mark, just embrace the day as it Be You're like, oh gosh, we'd all be narcissists. Um, but I do think that having, um, having a healthier sense of the season that we're in, And just accepting the, accepting it as not always lasting forever. So right now I'm in a great season. I don't have to go to the hospital that much. I have a kid who I find truly hysterical. I get to do work that I love. You know, I get to have that feeling of wind in my sails. And so just accept that for the gift that it is and, and make plans that can be a part of that beautiful thing. But also um, don't imagine you get endless chances to do that lovely thing. And so I sometimes it means we have to take a bulldozer to the life we have and not say do email for eight hours a day if we can, or like infuse more joy and surprise. Yeah, I'm definitely better at that than I used to be. I will do very random fun things because I don't I really don't assume things last forever.
0: What's an example of that?
1: I saw sharks recently. Cause when I was put, po- when I was poisoned, Mark, when I was, <laughs> when I was recently poisoned, any,
0: any story that begins I, with when I'm poisoned, I'm that's, I was, I'm all ears.
1: And I was feeling sort of, I was feeling so, uh, it, you know, it was, it was painful and it was awful. So I immediately just took out my laptop and while on a lot of drugs, I made some plans to go visit a shark conservation effort cut to two weeks later, I like helping pull dinosaurs out of the ocean And I know that that is a reflex I have now because when my life gets small, it's claustrophobic and it's awful. And the hospital is just the worst. And I need something that cuts through the noise of that much terrible. And so I find that it is joy and surprise and something that's usually for no reason at all. So I'll do something. So it'll never be like, and I'll just get a spa day. I'll do something dumb. And I... So I went paragliding the other day because I'm terrified of heights, and you know, oh, I, me too. Yeah, it's it's horrible. No one, everyone needs to stay on the earth. The, the sky yeah. is a terrible plan. <laughs> yeah,
0: just as an aside, like you know, in terms of phobias. Yeah. Fear of heights. Fear of heights does not seem illogical to me. No, it's a it's a good <laughs> we, idea. We were designed to have our feet on the ground. We yeah, were not designed alive. to, to <laughs> yeah. hover above the above the earth at yeah. ten thousand feet. You know,
1: everything you're saying is completely reasonable. Um, yeah, and, and so, but none of it feels like bucket list versions of that. Like, oh, I'm afraid of heights, and therefore I must lean into. It feels to me like there are, and for some people, it's having a really nice. Like just have a bonfire and sit out with your friend, and have that long talk, but whatever it is that, um, feels like it is the, it, it, it meets the terrible within a place that sort of rings on the same frequency. Yeah. I find that, uh, surrealness, the surrealness of tragedy and the surrealness of lovely experiences kind of, they, they cancel each other out for me. And so I, I really, I feel like it's a neat trick and I'm going to do it a I million
0: it. times more. Yeah. And and I, th- it's interesting what you just said about bucket list. Cause I think a lot of people could misconstrue the shark trip as a bucket list kind of thing, but yeah. I think it's a totally different context because it's, it's more spontaneous. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not turning those kinds of experiences into a mission, right? That's it's, right. It's, yeah. it's, 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 de- it's, it's sort of, kind of experiencing them one at a time for the, for their own sake, rather than accumulating them, like you're putting them all in a cabinet that you can show people.
1: That's right. I will never collect the whole, you know, I'll never get the whole collection of experiences and it certainly will never add up to enough, but in that moment, it adds up to more and everybody has different math for that. For me, it's close relationships, a very like an, A nice glass of wine and hearing a friend's story, like a really fun story, like something a little surprising or embarrassing. Gosh, I I could last on that for weeks, but everybody has different math. And I, uh, I have found that the, the more, the more we accept life for what it is, the more we require uh, discernment about how to create uh, the experience of more.
0: So. Do you think that there is uh, even more sort of ignorance about finitude today because there is this, we have more control over our lives than we've ever had throughout yeah. human history. And so we there's almost a delusion now that if you do all the right things, you can, you can engineer the outcomes you want.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perfect word, engineer. I, I, I hope with the pandemic, we understand our own collective you know, that we're made of soft material and so are our lives. Um, I hope we understand that and have more gentleness with ourselves because of that. But certainly we're swimming upstream against cultural messages that tell us that we should feel unlimited.
0: Kate, this has been such a delight, honestly, for me, it's been such a pleasure, you know, exploring your work and and your message and, and to have this time with you today. I, I'm very grateful for it. Um, And and I'm very grateful for the stories you tell and how well you tell them and the and the sense of humor you bring to it all. I think it, it has a huge impact. So thank you Aww. very much.
1: Thanks so much, Mark. This was such a treat.
0: And thank you for your Canadianness, your unabashed Canadianness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bring Winnipeg to the masses.
0: That's Kate Bowler, the author of No Cure for Being Human. There's so much that I admire and appreciate about Kate. She really makes you go past some of the cliches associated with life and death, and get to what really matters. She challenges a lot of assumptions. She shares a really profound perspective about the fragility of life and the lack of control we have. And she does it all with intelligence and humor. And despite her circumstances, there's there's just something so hopeful and positive about her message. And I have to admit, as a Canadian, I love the fact that she's constantly making references to Canada. So once again, a huge thank you to Kate Bowler for joining us on Digging Deep. And if you enjoyed this episode... I have a favor to ask. Please review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please send it to a couple of people you think would enjoy it. That will help us reach more people and produce more great episodes. And one last thing. If you want to keep digging deep into topics and lessons like this, I have a weekly newsletter that I send out. I know you probably already get lots of stuff in your inbox, but this one is very quick, and it's right to the point It's five very short items that I've discovered each week. It'll only take you a couple of minutes to read, and it has some great lessons from experts that you can apply right away. So please subscribe at letsdigdeep.com. That's letsdigdeep.com. And get ready for more great stories and powerful lessons on the next edition of Digging Deep. Thank you for listening.